We are continuing in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Today's passage is 1 Corinthians 3, 18 to 23. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of authority, sign on his authority over us. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in his craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Is that good? Can you hear me? All right. Uh, had a great time at the men's retreat. Only got to stay for part of it. Ran back home to watch uh, one of my kiddos run in the state cross-country um, meet, which was really fun. FYI, our youth group is fast. I just want you to know that. There's a lot of good runners, a lot of good athletes there, a lot of great people. And obviously the leaders, the people who lead there are what make that really special. Um, had a great time talking with the guys that I did get to talk with at the men's retreat. And I hope you who did not get to go, that you'll make plans even now in your heart that next year you will go. It's a, it's a great time to connect. Talk to one of the guys who was there. You'll find out. A couple quick logistical things. Um, one is this. Uh, I don't know if many of you know this or not, but right over here across the hall is a, is a room where we, we actually pipe the sermon and everything that's going on in here through this camera into that room. So if you, if you are noisy or you have someone small who's noisy, you can go over there and watch um, with a little bit more freedom to move about the cabin, so to speak. That's just one thing I want to make sure you're aware of. The other thing is I just want to highlight again, um, baptisms are coming up right after the service today. You just go out these doors right here, and then instead of turning right, like you're going to leave, turn left. Um, just right there by the climbing wall, I'm going to have a little uh, baptism class afterwards. I'm going to tell you what baptism is all about, um, answer any questions that you might have. You don't, you, this is not a commitment to be baptized. It's just, hey, come find out what baptism is all about. Why is it important? Why do we do it? What does the Bible say about it? It's going to be right after the service. Okay. So I was... Uh, reading this recently in a book um, about the process of looking for a diamond, like if you're going to buy a diamond for a piece of jewelry or something like that. Um, there are certain things that you look for when you're buying a diamond that ro- lowers or raises the price. Um, there's the four C's, cut, I think this is right, cut, cl- somebody correct me if I'm wrong here, okay. Cut, clarity, color, carrot, is that right? Okay, I'm seeing nods, good, thank you, okay. Um, to take those four different aspects of what makes up a diamond in, to like understand the various cut, the clarity and all that, the, what, what you do is you go to the jeweler, obviously, and the jeweler will give you some sort of magnification device, whether it's a, a little piece that you look through with your eye or a magnifying glass, so that you could take in the beauty of the stone. But perhaps, at least this is what this book that I was reading said, um, what helps set off the beauty most clearly is when you take that diamond and not only do you magnify it, but you put it in front of a dark background, a black cloth. That stark contrast, you shine a light onto the diamond and the stark contrast of the diamond 
with the light shining in it to that dark background brings out the brilliance of the diamond. Today, what we're going to do in this text that we just read, we're going to go diamond viewing, diamond hunting, in a sense. There is a glorious, life-transforming truth that's held out in our passage today for us to marvel at. And it's set apart by a stark contrast. That's the way this passage works. The point of the sermon, I'm just going to tell you what it is right off the bat. The point of this sermon is to warn you that the wisdom of the world is foolishness. Especially, or even specifically, in contrast to all that we have in Christ. My great hope, this is what I hope happens as you walk out of here today happens in these moments, happens when you leave, is that by the power of the Spirit, you would walk out repulsed by the world's wisdom, and you'd marvel at and embrace all that you have in Jesus. If I was going to summarize what this sermon is in one phrase, what, I, what I'm going to try to argue to you, so to speak, over the next several minutes, it's this. Become a fool to have it all. Let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Lord, we just continue to call out to you. This is an expression of our dependence on you to pause, to recognize that you are here. Lord, we're asking you to speak to us, to speak to our hearts, the deepest parts of us. Sharpen our focus now to hear your word, to know your wisdom, to whatever it is that you have for us this morning, Lord. Cause us to reject the wisdom of this age and to rejoice that all things are ours, and we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. The way this sermon is going to be structured is actually right around the the structure of the passage. So I'm going to walk us right through the passage, explaining and drawing out what it means, and hopefully we'll arrive at that, that idea, that great, beautiful diamond in the end, okay? So verse 18 Look at that with me. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to look at it on your own, um, but it'll also, I think, be up here too. So where we're at, we're we're working our way through 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Paul's warning the Corinthians, don't deceive yourself into believing that by aligning with the wisdom of this age, you're actually wise. We're all pretty good at self-deception, all of us. I am, I know I am. It goes like this in my mind. If I just cut a little sliver of the cake off and eat that, that doesn't really count towards my waistline. I deceive myself into thinking something is true when it's actually not true. I do all kinds of things like that. Because in the end, what I do is I end up cutting a lot of little slices of that cake for myself, right? Because none of them count. It's very easy to convince ourselves when the watching world likes what we do that we're doing something wise and good when in fact we're living contrary to the ways of God. If we get that positive feedback from the world, we think, yeah, we're we're on the right path. The Corinthians lived according to worldly wisdom. We've talked about this several times. It was this idea of I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And that... When they, when they started to align themselves with particular teachers, it created divisions in the church. They lived according to worldly wisdom. It created divisions in the church. So let me ask you this. Do you think that, do we think that collectively, 
We can adopt the philosophies and values of the world in our private lives, that is the life that goes on outside of here, and it won't impact the church? Do you think that what's happening with the Corinthians is they're adopting the prevailing attitudes of the world, and then they're bringing that into the church? Do you think that you can go out into the world and live your life how the world would want you to live your life, and then it wouldn't impact the church? This passage says, brother or sister, don't deceive yourself. It will. It will impact the church. In the eyes of the world, in the opinion of this age, by associating, we're talking about the time of the Corinthians now, by associating with the right teacher or the right ways of thinking, the Corinthians would come across wise. At least in the eyes of the world they would be. According to common opinion, by grouping with the right person, they would be on the right side of history. So let me ask you this then. What are the value systems of our age? What is it that if you've got it or you believe it, the world would look at you and say, yeah, that person knows what's up. That person's smart. Or to borrow the the language of 1 Corinthians 3, that person's wise. What are those things, those values that make the world think that about us? In 1 Corinthians, we've actually seen a couple of those things that were true then. They're still true now. The first one is this. We find and follow strong leaders. We find and follow strong leaders. What if tomorrow I ended... This is hypothetical. This is not going to happen. What if tomorrow I ended my time here as the pastor of this church and you needed to go look for a new pastor? What would be the top criteria in your mind for a new pastor here at Christ Community? Organizational capability? Strategic planning ability, the ability to rally the troops around a common cause through like fiery rhetoric, strong social agenda, desire to do stuff outside the church. Is that what should be in the top place, any of those things? In God's kingdom values, what he's looking for are servants, servants of all. Those who come in, like Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians, those who come in weakness, fear, and trembling to lay down their lives for other people. God wants men and women who resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is, men and women who make Jesus Christ the center of their lives. If our Savior suffered and died, we follow the same path. We pick up our cross. We also suffer and lay down our lives for others. The world looks for strong and mighty leaders. Jesus said, the last shall be first. Here's another worldly value that we might appeal to. Form over content. Remember talking about this one? What about people here that come up here and preach Sunday after Sunday? When preachers come up here to speak, maybe your primary thoughts are, Whoa, Craig is really boring today. Or, whoa, Craig was really interesting today. Whatever your thought is. I'm not out to be boring. Just so you know, that's not my goal, to prove some point. I continue to work on my preaching. I want to get better over the course of my life. But if the primary measure that you measure good or bad sermons by is whether or not the the person who's preaching is interesting, you've got it wrong. If If you prefer form over content... You've got it wrong. It's the content that's of primary importance. I am, and others who come up here, 
teaching what the Bible says. That is our great goal. And that's the, that is the criteria by which we ought to be judged. I do not sit in this sense. I don't sit over the Bible, like my authority over the Bible. The Bible, which is here on my iPad, is over me. Okay? I wish it was a better visual, but you get what I'm saying. I sit under the authority of the Bible. We all sit under the authority of the Bible. And that content, the content of the Bible, is what matters. Far more than the form. Those are ways that we might grab onto what the world loves and say, oh, that's really wise. That's really great. Power, strength, or flash and glitz of form. But as Christians, our, our wisdom is this. We've already read this back in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. It'll be up here on the screen. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I've heard people call this the great reversal where God's values and God's priorities take the place of the world's values and priorities. You want to know what the antidote to self-deception, convincing yourself that being wise in the eyes of the world is actually the way to go? Do you want to know what the antidote to that is? You become a fool by the standards of the world. You embrace this wisdom, the foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ. So at the very beginning... This is the dark background I was talking about that sets apart starkly the brilliance of the diamond. The dark background, the moment that we're in right now is a moment of self-examination. Where do we, where do I, where do you give way to the wisdom of this world? Have you ever embraced the foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant? The Savior who died that we might live. This is an invitation to believe. If you haven't trusted your life to Him, if you haven't embraced the cross, embrace it. Embrace it today. That's true wisdom. To trust that God's wisdom is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. What you get is wisdom that is eternal, true, beautiful, what you really need. Examine yourself. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you will be a fool in the eyes of this world. They'll despise you at times. That's what they did to our Savior too. Maybe that despising, maybe that persecution won't be so intense sometimes. Sometimes it will. But here's what I want you to remember, that man, oh man, the fool that is sitting at the foot of the cross is free, truly free, free from sin, free from the endless treadmill of gaining approval from others by what you do or what you say or who you are. You are free to be who you are meant to be. Paul continues. Verses 19 and 20. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and they are futile. 
God calls a spade a spade here. The wisdom of the world is folly. If you embrace, if you fall in with, if you ascribe to, if you believe what the world, that is the prevailing sentiment of our age, believes, you believe something foolish. In in verse 19, Paul quotes Job. He says this, if you look at it, it says, he catches the wise in, in their craftiness. What is he saying here? He's saying that the people who think they're wise, the people who think they're crafty, not in Etsy sense, crafty, tricky, clever, they're not who they think they are. What they perceive to be their own intelligence proves to be their undoing. They think they're smart. It leads them astray. And then he quotes the Psalms. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. At first glance, this is what I first thought. At first glance, it seems like what what God's saying here is that he can see the thoughts, the futile thoughts of people, the people who think of themselves as wise. But that's actually not it. The word know here, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, is the same as, uh, for example, in Amos 3.2. I think that'll be up here on the screen too. This is Amos 3.2. You only, you only I have known of all the families of the earth. God is speaking to Israel in the book of Amos. This does not mean that God is only aware of this certain section of people. He's only aware of Israel. What no means is actually more like chose. God chose the people of Israel. I chose you out of the earth. That's what he's saying in Amos 3. And so what Paul is showing us about those who live according to the wisdom of this age is that God chooses, he chooses that their thoughts would end in futility. Their way of living, in the end, will not be productive. He knows that the end is bad. In the end, it will end in loss. God doesn't just look at the foolishness of the world and think, wow, that's not smart. Wow, that's not a really wise decision. God makes the wisdom of the world foolish. He actively frustrates and undermines all those who do not live according to his ways. Every year my family goes to a family camp. Um, And some of my kids every year want to fish. It's the only time every year that we fish. Getting those fishing poles working is one of those moments where it's like, leave daddy alone. Don't come near me. Don't talk to me. It's one of those moments. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. It's an exercise in futility every year. Those who align themselves with the values of this age, those who seek to be wise according to the rules or the knowledge or the culture of this age, will live a life of futility. Sooner or later, what you think you have will be lost. It won't matter. It won't last. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men. That's the first half of the verse. Reverse your values, Corinthians. Reverse your values, Christ community. Here's why boasting in men, why an expression of living out the values of the world is such a big problem. First, 
It's focusing on man and not on God. That's been a big theme of 1 Corinthians. Remember that passage where we talked about how God gives the growth. Paul, he planted. Apollos, he watered. God gives the growth. You're boasting like the men did it. God did it. Chapter 1, verse 31. Boast in the Lord. When you turn to the ways of the world, you're boasting in man and away from God. Second reason why it's such a big problem to do this. When we boast in a particular man, when we narrow our focus to someone or something living according to the rules of the world, we miss the massive riches that Christ has brought us into. And that's the point of the second half of our passage. God gives us so much more. We're getting to the diamond. So if the first half of this passage is this dark background, it's that the wisdom of the world is foolishness. Do not be deceived. Now we turn to the diamond. God offers you something so much greater. C.S. Lewis has an often quoted section from a collection of sermons called The The Weight of Glory. I realize some of you may have heard this quote a million times. Maybe some of you have never heard it before. We're going to quote it again because I think it fits so well exactly what we're talking about right here. It's going to be up here on your screen. C.S. Lewis says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When we choose to boast in anything but Christ, when we choose to follow along with the wisdom of this age, when we deceive ourselves to thinking that we're wise because we look like the rest of the world and the world thinks that we're wise, so we're wise, what we're doing is we're trading a vacation for mud pies in a slum. We trade the promises and the rewards and infinite joy for what the world gives we are often far too easily pleased. Verses 18 through 21, the dark background. And now, verses 21 through 23, the diamond. Let's reread those verses. For all things are yours. This is actually, the, I'm starting in the second half of verse 21. For all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Here's what this means. While the church might bicker about a million different things, Apollos or Paul or Cephas or the type of music or the color of the chairs or the type of sermons or on and on and on and on and on, God says this, All things are yours. All things are for your benefit. All people and all circumstances. If you are a Christian, everything, not just one or two guys, life, 
death, present, future, is all for your profound good. One theologian said this. Every possible... He's talking about this particular verse. Every possible experience in life, and even the experience of death itself, belongs to Christians. In the sense that, in the end, it will turn out to be for their good. Romans 8.28 conveys the same idea. We're just going to put it up here. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is one of the most loved promises in all of scripture. That our sovereign God works all things. All things for our good. This promise has helped so many Christians endure through circumstances that seemed unbearable, evil, painful, or pointless. We believe that, though we don't see or understand the whole picture, we can trust God no matter what happens in life. Now, I understand the questions that that raises. Can I trust God when things seem to be so bad? Can we know that in this, even in this, this, whatever this is for you, that even in this, that God is in control and that he loves me, that the end is good for me? Last week I was looking at John 11. This is a story of Lazarus. He was a friend of Jesus. He died. And that is a story in and of itself because Jesus raises him from the dead. But the part that really grabbed me as I was um, reading it last week, was an exchange that Jesus had with Lazarus's sister, Martha. Martha was also a friend of Jesus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. John 11, verse 20 says this. It'll be up here on your screen. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. Just take out brother. Lord, if you had been here, my... Take out brother and replace it with whatever you're facing right now. Lord, if you had been here, this would not have died. What is it for you? Is it your past that you regret? Your loved one that you lost? Your dreams? Your job? Your future? Or death itself? Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. What is Jesus' response to her? He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. She wanted an answer for her loss. And he gave her a revelation of glory. Rarely do we understand this side of heaven, why we experience trials, 
fires, suffering. But what we do know for certain is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We know for certain that all things are yours. All things work together for our good. What does that do for you? What does knowing that and believing that actually do for you in the midst of suffering? In the midst of suffering, that truth allows us to locate ourselves. That's the language of Paul Miller. We locate ourselves. Let me explain what that means. When we encounter suffering, we can quickly become aware, oh, this isn't here to destroy me. It's here to give me more of Jesus. I think oftentimes when we do encounter suffering, our instinctive response is, what's going on? Why is this happening? Why am I here? What's taking place? God, are you there? God, will you help me? But when we understand that all things are ours, that God is sovereign over this, and he's working together, even this, for our good, we can locate ourselves in that moment as being joined to Christ being part of what Christ, being joined in a sense to Christ's story. Oh, I'm suffering like Jesus suffered. He died and rose. He is the resurrection and the life. I will also die in super small ways and also in big ways through the suffering that I'm experiencing right now. And I will also rise to something greater. It allows us to locate ourselves. Miller says that when we encounter suffering, we know the story that we're in, which is Jesus' story. We know where we are in that story. We're dying. We're suffering. And we know the outcome, some kind of resurrection. And that clarity calms the soul. All things are yours. What do you fear? What is your greatest fear? What if you lost it would crush you? Is it something in the future? Is it death itself? Brother and sister, all things are for your good. All things became yours because the Lord of all gave himself for you. And there's more. There is more. Much more. What I, want you, what I want us to do right now is something new. Something that we haven't... We're going to do two new things. Here's the first new things. We're going to read this next verse out loud together. Because it's so important. This is verse 23. I want us to read this out loud together. All things are all... Oh my goodness, I screwed it up. Unbelievable. What a build-up, but then... Ugh. All right. Thank you, Lord. All right. Let's read it. For real. All are yours... And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. We got it. What does that mean? This is the doctrine of being in Christ, of being united to Christ. When you think about the most important or the most significant themes of the New Testament, what do you think of? Adoption, justification, election. The idea of in Christ, being united in Christ, is discussed either implicitly or explicitly, over 200 times in the New Testament. That's on average once per page. 
That's how significant this is, the doctrine of being in Christ. Dane Ortland, in the book Deeper, helped me really understand this more fully. I highly recommend that book, Deeper, by Dane Ortland. It helped me understand nearly everything I'm going to say to you right now. He gives an illustration of what this doctrine would be like if we don't believe it, if we don't live it out. Imagine this. An orphan is adopted into a loving family, given everything that he or she would need. And then that orphan, after being adopted and brought into this loving family, all that he or she would need, leaves the house one morning and walks down to the local homeless shelter for a meal and a place to sleep. What if you found that child, now adopted, at the homeless shelter? What would you say? What would you do? You look at that kid and you say, what are you doing? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know where you belong? You don't need this. You've been given so much more. You belong to that family. And so it is with you. You are Christ's. Christ is God's. You are in Him. If you belong to Him, why would you try to define yourself by anything else? Why would you try to live any other way? Why would you live by the wisdom of the world? The Corinthians want to define themselves by association with great teachers. What a joke! What a mud pie compared to being in Christ. Do you see the contrast now? Let me try to illustrate this another way. I saw David Platt do this. This is the second thing that we've never done before. I've got a prop. I like swore to myself I'd never do this, you know. But here we are. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do it up here. Um, I'll do it back here because I'm supposed to stay on the camera. Okay, here's the idea. I got boxes. I'll, I'll hold them up. Don't worry. I'll, I'll get them up there. All right, here we go. Getting ready. Here we are. All right. Now we're ready. I can't get it off. All right. This is probably why I don't do that. This is this box is you. Okay. Here we go. Did I tell you I saw David Platt do this? Okay. I just want to make sure that's clear. All right. Here's you. Okay. There you are. Does everybody see that? That's you. All right. Now, last week we learned that in verse 16 of chapter three that you are a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. The best prop I could give you for the Holy Spirit is the Word of God. So here we are. There's the Holy Spirit inside you, okay? There you are. The Holy Spirit is inside you. The Spirit of Christ is inside of you. There you are. But what else do we learn this week? We learn that you are what? You're in... You are who? Who's? Christ. Yeah, that's right. So here we are. See what we're doing here? So now, I'm going to write on this, you are in Christ. Oh, that, that's not very easy to see, but you, can, you get the idea. There's Christ, okay? You're in Christ. But it doesn't end there. Christ is, Christ is God's. That's right. So, big box. Christ God is, in, is God's. There you go. You see that? You see that picture? Here's what I'm trying to say. This is a quote from Dane Ortland. 
Nothing can touch you. Think about this. Look at this. You're in there. You're in there. Nothing can touch you that does not touch him. To get to you, every pain, every assault, every disappointment has to go through him. You are shielded by invincible love. Everything that washed into your life, no matter how hard, comes from and through the tender care of the friend of sinners. The might of heaven. The power that flung galaxies into existence. He swept you into himself. And you are there to stay. What's coming at you right now? What's coming at you right now? No matter what the cancer diagnosis is. No matter how broken your family feels. No matter what this people have done to you or will do to you. No matter what happens in your job, no matter what the world throws at you, all things are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You are safe. There's a list that Ortland gives that tells us all we have now that we are in Christ. Here's the list. I'm just going to read it. Because we are in Christ, because we're united with Christ, we're no longer condemned, no longer defiled, no longer orphaned, No longer estranged, no longer dirty, no longer enslaved, no longer in debt, no longer imprisoned, no longer non-existent, no longer blind, no longer dead. Do you want that? Become a fool. Embrace the cross. If you have trusted in Christ, all things are yours. One more thing from Ortland. Whatever looms large... Spiritual apathy, habitual sins, deep-seated resentment, perpetual defeat. What feels insurmountable? Christ is greater. Your union with him, more sure and complete, you will never be kicked out. So see this picture. All is yours. You are Christ's. Christ is God's. When you're in Jesus, nothing can stand against you. Nothing. Not the present, not the future, not even death itself. Don't be self-deceived. Don't, be, don't trade the treasure of Christ for the foolishness of this world. Become a fool to have it all. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Oh, man, Lord, we are so safe. We are so secure. And we need not try to boast in our achievements or works or self because we have you, Lord Jesus. What manner of love is this? Wow. Help us to drink deep from the well of being in you this week. All things are ours. All things are for our benefit. Help us to locate ourselves in those moments of suffering to know that we are, we are in you. It's not a surprise. It's for our good. You're at work. Thank you that we are secure in your love. We trust you. Amen.